0: Lab chat. lab chat oh hello lab friends thanks once again for joining us on another episode of lab chat i'm really happy that you're here listening that means that if you listen to the last episode you weren't scared away and you're coming back for more And that's great, because today we're kind of talking about something that was related to the last episode, tumor markers. Um, And one of the markers that we're talking about today was actually found to be elevated in sarcoidosis. So that's kind of a perfect segue to talk about this black box of uh, laboratory medicine. And it's something that people who are working in more of a hospital environment may not have much familiarity with, because... Um, we're often sending tumor markers out to reference labs. So this is a very interesting su- subject here, and um, hope you enjoy it. And just a reminder, if you haven't visited our website, camlt.org, please give us a visit. We really appreciate it. All right, so here we go. So tumor markers are something we think about for de- not necessarily detection of um cancer because they have this risk of, uh, not being very specific. And what we mean by that is having a lot of false positives. And we'll talk about some of that when we get into specifics, but oftentimes these are glycoproteins that are expressed on cell surfaces in the body. Um, so we can use them for more for staging, monitoring of conditions, um, You know, say you have a tumor removed, we can monitor the drop in these specific tumor markers. And the fact that they're glycoproteins means that they're good subjects for um, immunological techniques where we use antibody to detect them. And so this is most often done with some kind of spectrophotometric measuring of an enzymatic linkage like an ELISA. Um, So one of the ones that you may be familiar with is like a peroxidase-linked antibody. And what we do is we introduce the sample and we introduce some other antigen that has less affinity for the antibody. And it's kind of a competition assay. And so at the end of that assay, the, the amount of peroxidase activity is measured. And this is indirectly correlated to the amount of glycoprotein that may be in the serum. And so that's kind of the idea behind it. Um, And most of them function around the same principle. And we can use other reporter molecules, you know, radio immunoassays and things like that. Um, And we'll talk about some of that as we go through them. If we get into this, the first uh, tumor marker I want to talk about is alpha-fetal protein. And this is a marker that is present in the yolk sac of the fetus um, during gestation and the liver as well. And it peaks in week 13, declining in 34 weeks. And once the baby is born and once you become an adult, alpha fetal protein should basically go away um, or be in very low levels. Um, So where we think about this being useful is A, detection of fetal distress um, and things that could be affecting the fetus because the yolk sac and liver are being affected and this marker is being shed. So these are uh, neural tube defects and spina bifida and other things like that can be detected. But in adults, we think of uh, hepatocellular carcinoma of the liver. Um, We can also see this elevated in testicular and ovarian teratomas, um, Pancreatic cancer, gastric, and colonic carcinomas. Generally, this immunoassay functions by that peroxidase uh, method that we talked about. Um, and this one of the better uh, assays has two antibodies actually that are specific, and one's linked to a peroxidase, the other to a polysulfated uh, tyrosine. And um, we introduce this. Um, LCA, it's called, which is actually a lens curlinus agglutinin. And if you look this up, it's just from lentils, actually. It's a lectin that uh, lentils contain. And we start to think of those plant lectins being very influential and important in blood bank. And that makes sense because they bind uh, glycoproteins. So this is a glycoprotein. So another uh, lectin that we can add to our vocabulary. And... A total side note on this is that LCA, this lectin, um, actually caused an upregulation in a gene uh, that results in glucose six phosphatase activity, um, which is basically just an enzyme that is taking glucose six phosphate and turning it into glucose. So it's very important for gluconeogenesis and creating free glucose um, and absorption of glucose. And so we see this enzyme actually increasing in starvation, but for whatever reason, we have receptors that bind this LCA and tell our gut to get ready to absorb some glucose. Um, But some research has suggested that in rats, um, this activity also increases with phosphenolpyruvate and uh, carboxykinase um, and some other transcription factors that may uh, encourage colon cancer. So that's kind of worrisome, but again, not not great linkage there. It's just kind of a, a suggestion. And this is not to be that glucose 6-phosphatase shouldn't be confused with glu- glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, um, which is a whole other thing. And then you might be thinking about fava beans, if you remember that, and favism, but these are totally unrelated, and that's a totally other story. So I'll get back to what I'm talking about. Um, there are three different glycoforms of this alpha-1 fetoprotein, and uh, the third fractionation, alpha-fetoprotein L3, um, may help identify more aggressive forms of uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, but it appears that measuring the total alpha-fetoprotein um Concentration in the serum is much more sensitive for early detection, so there may be some use in, you know, studying the different variants. But in general, looks like just um, alpha fetal protein total is the best. So that's basically all I have to say about that one. Um, the next one I'd like to talk about is uh, CEA antigen, if you've heard of that one, carcinoembryonic embryonic antigen, and this one's very similar. Uh, to alpha-fetoprotein in that it's a fetal glycoprotein antigen and it's found in high levels uh, when you're a fetus. And it makes sense because you're a fetus, you have very immature, lots of stem cell activity, um, and cancer kind of does this same thing. It's almost a reversion to a, a prior state, an undifferentiated state in some cases. So um, it's found on epithelial cells and fetal GI uh, tissue. It's used as a cell adhesion um, glycoprotein, and uh, it's really important actually in metastatic dissemination of this carcinoma. So these oftentimes these markers uh, can be upregulated by the cancer cells for its own purpose. and it's interesting to look at cancer cells as almost an infectious organism. you know, the things that they do, uh, are kind of following the same principles of life. They're um, creating these or using these potential uh, adhesion molecules and other things for their own benefit. Um, so that's a very interesting finding. And and also we should note that this is part of the CD66 group, so those cell differentiation um, markers that we think of when when we think of like flow cytometry and other you know, white blood cells and red blood cells and stem cells, you can also group this into that. Um, it It's important to note here that we also have immunohistochemical uh, procedures where we can actually stain a tumor uh, with a, an antibody here. Um, and that's not the case with all of these, but it's kind of something we don't think of because we're not as much on the histology side, but it's definitely something to note. And... Um, Generally, this is seen in adenocarcinomas of the digestive tract. You know, colorectal cancers, things like that. As we discussed, you know, being found in the GI tract, um, this is going to be more specific for that than anything. Um, but other malignancies can, you know, cause these to be elevated. And you think of things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis that are happening in the gut, but also things like COPD and Uh, you know, other things that are inflammatory disorder may lead to more shedding of of this glycoprotein. So, um, that's basically all I have to say about CEA, and uh, we'll kind of go through these next couple quickly because I think we're all familiar with uh, beta-HCG, you know, for pregnancy tests. And... um, Once in a while, you'll see an article about how, uh, you know, some guy peed on a pregnancy test and uh, it was positive. And that's actually exactly what we're talking about here when we talk about um, non sematomous testicular tumors uh, where beta-HCG might actually be elevated. And um, when we say beta, we're just referring to the the B subunit of this glycoprotein that is uh, unique to the hormone. And it's secreted generally by the trophoblast cells of the placenta, but in um, trophoblastic tumors and choriocarcinomas, ovarian tumors, you know, we can see this being elevated for no other reason. You know, the person's not pregnant, um, so it's definitely one that's good to monitor. And we don't often think of those uh, beta hCG tests coming through being a cancer screening, but you know, they can be. Um, And HER2 is one that you might have heard of as well. This is an epidermal growth factor receptor. um, And it's used to predict the response, actually, of breast cancer to a drug called uh, Herceptin, which is a monoclonal antibody. So basically, we're going to measure this in order to see if, in this tumor, to see if um, the person is a candidate for Herceptin treatment. And that's kind of an interesting other way to think about these things. Another one that is uh, probably familiar to every one of our grandpas is uh, prostate-specific antigen. And uh, this one's produced by the epithelial cells of the prostate gland, and it's secreted into the seminal plasma. Um, It's a glycoprotein protease that functions for liquefaction of uh, seminal coagulum, so you know, we should have some PSA uh, naturally, but the key is, does it get shed into the serum or is it staying pretty local? Um, when it does spread out, it's, it's uh, complex to alpha-1 anti antichemotrypsin, and um, this will become important because the free uh, unbound version is um, immunologically detectable, but um, both the bound and unbound make up the total PSA measurement. So um, it's this can be really important because we actually can measure uh, percent of free PSA. And so if more than 25% um, from a person that's in kind of the, the uh, gray area is free, then there's a low risk of prostate cancer, probably less than 8%. Um, So these cutoffs become very important and they should also be established with each individual assay uh, because we've seen such variation in the different types of assays on what the results are going to be. It's really up to um, each individual lab to assess uh, where where their cutoffs are going to be. And even some CAP surveys, they've seen 10 to 62 percent variation on um, the values that they're receiving from different labs. Um, so this is definitely one that that we have to think about lacking uh, specificity because um, it's increased in a variety of different things. Benign prostate hy- hypertrophy and adenocarcinoma of the prostate, of course, is what we're looking for. Um, there's a high risk of overdiagnosing someone with prostate cancer, but they've also found that Uh, in the people that they do, there's a decrease in mortality by um, rate by 20%. So it does have some function. It's mostly used uh, as a screening uh, or staging tool. And we can also talk about um, PSA velocity. So the rate at which, you know, your regular screenings with PSA have changed could uh, be a more specific indicator of what's going on. So the other thing is that, um, you know, higher levels, the, basically higher levels are, of this uh, PSA are going to be more correlated with a true positive. So it's interesting because there we're basically talking about our reference ranges and where do we want to set them. And when we change them, you know, we are altering sensitivity and specificity. So um, important to consider that. The other thing uh, I should have probably mentioned earlier, but you know, a lot of these assays, since they're using antibodies that are usually cultivated in mice, um, people can have these uh, what's called HAMA antibodies, and they're these heterophilic antibodies that are to a um, mouse antibody, and um, that can actually cause false positives. So it's it's very again and just another thing to make the the is a little rougher with these tumor markers, um, so of course the American Cancer Society recommends that you know the PSA alone isn't isn't enough, and you should be getting a direct rectal exam at 50 as well. So that's pleasant. Um, so the one that I alluded to earlier uh, was CA 15-3, and this is a mucin glycoprotein antigen produced by breast cancer cells. Um, that is, you know, shed into the bloodstream, and oftentimes if a if a cancer cell is proliferating at an increased rate, you know, there's going to be more shedding. Um, so it's useful for monitoring and detecting the reoccurrence of breast cancer, at least. Um, and it's one of those O-linked uh, glyco- glycolated um, glycoproteins that, um, interestingly... Uh, usually protects the body from infection um, by creating this kind of like big sugary uh, domain outside of the cell surface, and it really helps prevent pathogens from attaching and invading cells. And actually, um, one of the findings here is that H. pylori colonization is inhibited by uh, this CA15-3. Now um, it is increased, of course, in breast cancer because it's expressed in breast tissue. But you know, sarcoidosis, it is elevated, and they've found that there is correlation between um, how much, how how many granulomas a person has in this marker. So it does have some diagnostic value for that, at least. Um, and again, it's kind of just the disruption of. Of cellular material and release of these things into the bloodstream, we can also see it in uh, chronic hepatitis, tuberculosis, uh, and lupus. You know, bowel and lung cancer and uh, non-cancerous breast lesions. So again, you know, we it's not very specific, and it should be used with caution. Uh, but it it should also be said that. Um, you know, high, high above the reference ranges. Again, we're seeing that more diagnostic value the higher the higher the value becomes. It's it's more abnormal, right? And um, it's also important to note that there's another marker, CA twenty seven dash uh, twenty nine, that is just a different epitope of the same uh, mucin protein. It's actually a mucin one. Um, glycoprotein. So um, if you see that one, it's it's kind of the same, in the same vein. Uh, CA125 is a, a mucin glycoprotein antigen. It's actually a mucin-16. It's a transmembrane protein marker for ovarian and endometrial uh, cancer. And this one is more used to monitor the prognosis of a person. Um, So the second generation of this assay actually measures the um, M11 region of the glycoprotein along with the OC125, um, which has improved the interassay precision and linearity. Um, In other words, we're just saying that it diminishes the hook effect because we have a more linear response at those higher concentrations. And a side note here, you know, this is something to think about with our COVID uh, antibody tests that uh, we know that there's, you know, people are going to develop different uh, responses to viruses, bacteria, and the amount of antibody that's circulating is going to vary drastically. And so with our um, COVID tests. You know i know personally that we have seen hook effect happening with these uh, really severe cases and high antibody loads so um, something to keep in mind this one uh, going back to the ca 125 we actually observe it in uh, 80 percent of ovarian cancers in the tissue so we know that um, it is at least very linked to ovarian uh, cancer but we can also see it in u- uterine fibroids, uh, which are benign tumors, um, pancreatitis, uh, even in normal menstruation and pregnancy, we may have some elevation of this just uh, because of varying uh, disruptions, and then pelvic inflammatory disease and liver disease. So um, this, this is an interesting marker. Um, it's... One of the challenges here is that there is a lack of the actual purified um, CA-125 pro- glycoprotein for uh, analysis and standardization of these procedures. So that that has made it quite challenging. Um, the last one we're going to talk about today, and probably uh, the most interesting just with the other side note that this one has, is uh, CA-19-9. And this is a actually not a glycoprotein, it's a glycolipid, um, and it's seen elevated in most commonly in pancreatitis, and that's most commonly what it's used for, but also other diseases of the uh, gastrointestinal tract, like ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and it's really important because it's kind of one of the only uh, markers in the lab that we have for pancreatic cancer. And... What we find is that um, when detected, 70% of these people are already in the advanced stages of pancreatic cancer, and it's just such a terrible disease, so we're always looking for better ways to to monitor this one. Um, The interesting thing about CA19-9 is it's actually a part of the Lewis blood group, so again, we're going back to our blood bank knowledge, and... It is a ligand also for uh, monocytes and macrophages to help in immunosurveillance, and I tried looking into this, and I couldn't really find much about um, what it's doing as far as, you know, interacting with macrophages and things like that. I got to thinking that, you know, maybe the the actual uh, pancreatic tumor is using it in some way, the overexpression of it for immunomodulation so that it can continue to proliferate unchecked um, by natural killer cells and that other regulatory component of the immune system. But I wasn't able to find anything, so that's just kind of speculation. Um, So being a part of the Lewis blood group is interesting because it basically means that if you're one of these people that lack the fucosal transferase uh, to produce Lewis A., or the secretor genes, um, we're not going to be able to detect this. You don't have it. Um, So there's, I I forget what the exact percentage, I think 10% uh, of the population lacks any Lewis antigen or uh, doesn't have the secretor gene. So um, this could be a problem. And it also means that basically we have a low positive predictive value, meaning that the positive uh, results we get, um, you know, do, do not necessarily predict the disease, um, but we can use this again to monitor and gauge outcomes uh, of people. So um, it's kind of one of those things that it's not the greatest marker we have, but um, it's the only one at this point. And uh, so all of these things, when we think about tumor markers, you can see that um we we do have problems with sensitivity and specificity, and they're meant to guide decisions. They're not meant to be a replacement for regular screenings and uh, imaging studies and biopsies and things like that, which will be much more specific. But uh, they can help us get a picture of what's going on. And it's just so interesting to look at all the little interplays with all these other laboratory side ideas that we have. Um, and so that's why I thought this was a really good topic. And so as far as future directions go, um, you know, there's not a ton of innovation happening in this field. There's more um, going on out in biotech, kind of looking, uh, basically, you know, doing studies with mass spec where they kind of throw the whole gamut at it and study all these different proteins and see if any uh, unusual proteins stick out. So identifying new markers that might be there um, that we could study. Also, um, you know, using microarray as an idea um, where we actually seed a chip with proteins and screen for autoantibodies that um, may... uh, react with these proteins. And we actually see in, in a lot of different cancers that people are developing antibody responses, uh, to certain proteins. So maybe these could be used for diagnostic medicine. And I've also seen things like, um, monitoring of, uh, DNA that's shed into the bloodstream and things along those lines. Um, so there, there is some, uh, some innovation happening, but just such an important part of laboratory medicine and catching these, um, cancers early, you know, uh, monitoring the effects of them and changing course if need be. So, um, hope you enjoyed that. I, I definitely did. And it's one of those things where you just kind of get on Wikipedia or some, some other sites, you know, reading journal articles and you just jump from one to the other and the, the next one. And I really enjoy that. So, um, thanks again for coming to the show, listening, uh, giving us your time. We really appreciate it and, uh, look forward to the next one. Okay. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye.